So I want to begin this talk with a quote from uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was uh, a great Zen master, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, and the author of one of the earliest books on meditation practice called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which was actually my first teacher, and which continues to be one of the deepest and finest books um, still. And Suzuki Roshi said, I feel Americans, young and old Americans, all Americans, have a great opportunity to find out the true way of life for human beings. And then he addresses us, the Americans. You begin Zen practice with a very pure mind. We can substitute, you begin Dharma practice or you begin meditation practice with a very pure mind, a beginner's mind. You can understand Buddha's teaching exactly as he meant it. You can understand Buddha's teaching exactly as he meant it. These are really encouraging words for us. And, you know, he said these words a very long time ago because he died in 1971. So he wasn't speaking to people who had 30 years of Dharma practice under their belts. He was really talking to new students. And to know what the Buddha really meant. You know, the Buddha wanted so much for us to see what he saw and to know what he knew and to be happy and free. And he offered us so many teachings. He taught for, I think, 45 years, nonstop. And the path that he offered us to find this happiness and freedom and to really learn how to see what he saw and know what he knew, or at least some of it, was called the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path rests, it's divided into three parts, which are the three traditional trainings, the three foundations in training, in Dharma. And they are sila, or it's translated usually as ethics or virtue, but I like the translation love because sila is the activity of, of course it means precepts and, um, and an ethical way of life, but what is the source of the impulse to live like that? We don't understand sila as rules applied to us from the outside that govern our behavior and against which we need to rebel, but more as an expression of our understanding, an expression of our love of life and of this practice. And the second foundation is uh, called samadhi, which means the meditation, the concentration, the absorption that we have cultivated, the attention that we've cultivated here all week long. Um, And I like to translate that as presence. And the third one is wisdom, panya in Pali, prajna in Sanskrit, which we can think of as, it's a little less intimidating, as understanding. So another translation of samadhi that I really think um, 
is very useful for us as we consider leaving the safety of retreat and moving back into um, what we sometimes call our lives. Very strange, but uh, (laughs) going back to our lives, right? Um, The translation of samadhi that I think can really serve us tonight is trust. Just trust in experience. The willingness to be that close to experience, not separate from it, and just trust it so that what we see and taste and feel and know and think and touch, that we know that this is the truth, that we know that this is it, that we know that there is no other life. I mean, we imagine another life, the life we're going to have tomorrow, and we remember another life, but there really is no other life than right now, actually. And so trusting that this is it, um, it's not so easy to do. Um, I remember sitting with my teacher, Kobunchino Roshi. It was during a session, and he would do his interviews outside, and in a very kind of informal way. And we were sitting at the edge of a stream, and he was just asking me about my life, how was my daughter, whom he knew, and we were just having this kind of casual chat. And then he stood up, and he sort of brushed off his robes, and he said, well, this is it. And I thought, okay, interview is over. He's just saying, you know, it's time to go back to the zendo. This is it. But then I caught his eye and I realized, no, he was saying, this, this is it. Just this. Just this talking, just this casual sharing, just this moment. This is it. So trusting that this is it trusting that we're not separate from experience. This is part of what we've been doing here all week. And the good thing, I think, about Buddhist teachers is that we don't lecture you or tell you about the truth, but we give you tools, tools so that you can discover the truth and see the truth for yourself right here, that this is it, manifesting as this hall this group of people, and we're never going to be exactly this configuration of beings here again. This really is it. Even if we all get to come back to this retreat next year, I mean, what are the chances that exactly these 150 of you and us would be here again? Exactly us. So Vipassana means to see clearly, to see things clearly, to see our own hearts and minds, to see, as I'm sure you're seeing in Technicolor right now, to see our interactions with each other, to see what comes up when we just engage in the simple activity of talking to each other, (laughs) to see our relationships, to see our work, to see our whole lives are the Dharma, to see and know our place in the family of things so that we can really trust ourselves. But then the question arises, which self do we trust? Will the real self please stand up? The many beings are numberless. We chant this. In Zen practice, we chant this every night. We chant the Bodhisattva vows. And the first vow goes, the many beings are numberless. We vow to embrace them. And this means, at first it seems very daunting, the many beings out there. 
But gradually as we practice, we come to understand it's not just the many beings out there that we have to embrace. It's all the many beings of our own hearts, too. It's like that Emma Lazarus poem I had to memorize when I was young because she was a Jewish poet. And so in our Jewish community group, we had to memorize her poem, which is um, at the base of the Statue of Liberty. And it starts, give me your tired, your poor, your wretched. And we can just carry on from there, right? You're enraged, you're neglected, you're abandoned, you're giddy, you're ecstatic, you're hopeless. We vow to embrace them all. So will the real self please stand up? Which one is it? You know, who are you? Who am I? Who is Heather? Is it Heather? Or is it that piece of apple that she spat out last night? You know? In the big sky mind, Howie tells us, there's no self, right? To quote Bart Simpson, come on, Millhouse. There's no such thing as a soul. It's just something they made up to scare kids. (laughs) It's just something they made up to scare kids, like the Boogeyman or Michael Jackson. (laughs) So we we trust the self that is not separate from experience. We trust the body in the body. Not the body that we look at and objectify and weigh and measure. And somebody today was sort of asking me if I went to the gym and, you know, going like, it's not this body, it's this other body that we inhabit from within. The breath, the breath in the breath, from within the experience this felt sense of the moment, the moment arising, forming and dissolving, vanishing, forming and dissolving and vanishing. The contents of this moment are the contents of our awakening. This is it. This is all. And when we really, you know, in the moments that we can really be present with that, we see things form and dissolve. We see the contents of this moment or the contents of awakening. Okay, which moment? This moment. Which content? These. But then it's always changing, this flow of experience morphing one thing into another. This flow of experience that you call your life, that I call my life. This flow of experience that we call ourself. Outside on one of the tables I saw the quote by Dogen Zenji, it's a famous quote. Um, it says, to uh, study the self is to forget the self. And then it goes on to say, to forget the self is to be awakened by the myriad things. I don't know exactly which translation is up there, but that's what it says. To forget the self is to be awakened by the myriad things. So what does this mean? To paraphrase paraphrase Gary Snyder. He says, whatever made people think that mind, heart, isn't rocks, jumping mice, bunnies, cactus, clouds, or buildings. Meditation is the art of deliberately staying open 
so that myriad things can experience themselves. Those of you who are from LA, um, and many of us are here, and we sit together, and you know that one of the most powerful ways to stay present, to stay in this flow of experience, to trust the contents um, of awakening, to experience how do we forget the self? How do we forget the self? It seems, uh, anyway, how it's such a sticky thing, isn't it? Um, how do we do it? So Dogen was a Zen master from the 13th century from Japan and he taught something called the backward step and you can do it here you can do it right now just first notice there's a way in which we kind of lean into experience we kind of tip forward toward it I mean I can feel it I can feel myself sort of leaning toward you and um, part of it is just wanting to be close and to connect but there's a habitual aspect to it as well. And so just for a minute, see if you can experience that slight tilt forward into experience, that anticipation. You know, maybe this is it, but maybe this is, next moment is even going to be more it. You know, maybe this next breath is going to be more of a breath. Uh, better, somehow, maybe. So that tilt forward. And then just pull back for a second. Just even, you can just close your eyes for a minute and just feel yourself pull back maybe, maybe just half an inch. And then opening the eyes slightly, but not all the way yet. Just look in instead of out. We're usually, our consciousness is just flying out the eyes. So just step backward and look in, opening your eyes part way. And then you can even open them the rest of the way, but stay in that way so that you're seeing but not pouring out the eyes. I don't know uh, how to say it another way, but it's a very palpable experience. So this experience of stepping back is a backward step into pure receptivity. And he went on to say, when the self advances to experience myriad things, this is delusion. You know, that tipping forward into experience. This is a delusion. But when the myriad things can come forward and the translations vary. Experience themselves or illuminate the self. This is awakening. So we can, when we can step back into that space of pure receptivity and just let experience come to us, then if we're not separate from experience, we are each thing, that bunny that hops into view, the two squirrels fighting over the sunflower seeds that I put out as an act of kindness. <laughs> and it created a squirrel war. <laughs> so 
so we can step back and actually experience how each thing wakes us up. Each thing wakes us up. My teacher, my heart teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, I practiced with her from the time she came to Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1979 until she died in 1990. So that was 11 years of getting to be with her. And she died, uh, she died in the hospital. And I was with her part of the time while she was dying. And one night, she was sort of in and out, slipping in and out of consciousness. And she would kind of emerge, and there would be a sound. And she would hear the sound. And each time she heard a sound, you know, that click of a heavy hospital door, or the calling of a doctor on the loudspeaker, or that sort of squish, squish, squish of the rubber nurse's shoes and the linoleum in the hallway, uh, all these sounds of the hospital. And each time she heard a sound, she would just say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Each sound came forward and just illuminated her being, her being alive in that moment. And she was grateful to be alive as she was dying. So my first teacher was a Korean Zen master named uh, Sansanim. Later when he turned 60, we had to call him Day Sansanim. Day means great. Because that's a Korean tradition, that he got to be called great teacher. Just like after a certain point, you're wise enough, you get to be called Roshi. And he came to this country, really, it was an amazing story. He didn't know English, he didn't have money, he worked in a laundromat in Providence, Rhode Island, and some brown students discovered him and would go to his apartment and listen to him and then they wound up getting an apartment together and then it wound up being the Providence Zen Center and then it wound up being a worldwide international network of Zen centers. And he just died in November, on November 30th. So his teachings have been very much with me this year. And he taught us to meditate this way. He would, you know, he taught us to sit straight and keep our hands in a mudra and um, look down at a 45 degree angle and then he taught us to uh, he, we would ask a question what am I? what am I? we weren't supposed to you know the, the idea was to not find one answer with a real self please stand up but to keep asking and to drop down through all the layers well I'm a mom, well I'm a daughter, well I'm a sister, well you know to just keep dropping down through all the layers. What am I? What am I? Until we reached the mind that really didn't know. And when we would be go in for our Cohen interview and he would ask us, okay. And we'd be stopped. And he'd say, just that. Just keep that mind. That don't know mind. And his sitting instruction was, don't know. (laughs) 
just sit and don't know. <laughs> you laugh, but it's very hard to tolerate the unknown. It's very hard to live with uncertainty. And often as kids, you know, in school, we're punished for not knowing. Some people's parents would punish them for not knowing how to do their homework. I mean, it's not so easy to just stay in not knowing. Um, and Keats called the ability to stay with not knowing, he called it a negative capability because he saw that it was the source of his creativity, that the ability to stay in that moment before the poem came, not knowing if it would ever come, that that was the source of his creative, um, his writing. And we have this kind of love-hate relationship with the unknown and with the familiar. There's a sort of tropism of the familiar. We just gravitate toward the familiar. I mean, I'm going to be glad to get home probably tomorrow. I'll walk in the apartment. I don't really even like my apartment that much. But I'm going to walk into this. The apartment's okay. The neighbors are hard. So um, uh, I'll walk into the apartment and... You know, just because it's so familiar, it's where I live, it will feel like home. And there'll be that, ah, it's not really based on anything except that familiarity. I mean, you can experience that love-hate relationship when you begin to talk. You know, there's the longing to talk and to relate in the familiar way. But then there's all that naked, raw, open vulnerability that just hates having to talk. And both are true. So, um, to quote about this. This is from Stephen Batchelor. He's talking about don't know and the willingness to be surprised. Astonishment is a gift. The mystery that there's anything at all glimmers in the margins of awareness, but it rarely strikes home in all its intensity. No amount of effort can peel off the stubborn veneer of banality that renders the world flat, routine, and opaque. In spite of our sometimes desperate attempts to replace astonishment with a consoling opinion or belief, you only remain true to your quest by allowing the riddle of the world to disclose itself. So that's the myriad things coming forward into our space of don't know. That's the world coming forward to disclose itself. The mystery of our being revealing itself right here, right now. The Buddha, in his closing talk, his last Dharma talk, at the end of his life, um, in talking about this work of inquiry, there's lots of translations, strive on with diligence, complete your work um, with diligence, finish your work, but diligence always figures in there. And um, this word diligence can be translated, Tanisara Bhikkhu translates it, um, he talks about wariness and trust. I think of it more as 
a kind of mindfulness, heartfulness, and heedfulness. Maybe like, um, what is that expression? Tie your camel to the... No, trust Allah, but tie your camel to the post. So we're trusting experience, but we're also... There's a way in which we're paying attention. There's a way in which we're being um, very alert to what it is. And what's so challenging about the Buddha's teaching is he didn't just say, trust in me. So we don't get to just trust in him. In Buddha we trust. It's not that simple. We have to trust ourselves to be a lamp unto ourselves. And he taught us tools for how to be, how to become trustworthy to ourselves. Um, And he taught us to look, to investigate, don't know, what is it? And to look particularly in the areas where we kind of fudge the most. And the areas where we might tend to um, deceive ourselves. And particularly the areas of our intentions and our motivations for doing what we do. The Buddha was, um, some of you probably know, he really wasn't such a great father. He actually abandoned his wife and son. Um, so that's about as, well, that's not great. And um, <laughs> he didn't even start being a father or t- offering any teachings to his son until he was a latency age kid, and he and his foster mother had come and joined the order of monks and nuns, the monastics surrounding the Buddha. And, uh, but he did, he did go there, and he did want to be near his father. And so the Buddha, in his first teaching to Rahula, his son, gave him a real training in integrity. And this is something also important to talk about as we prepare to leave this container of the retreat. He gave him a real training in how he could um, become someone that he could really trust himself. And here's what he said to him. It sounds so simple, and it actually is. And in the swirl of our so-called lives, it's going to be really good to return to this simple way to gauge our trustworthiness. He said, reflect on your intentions before you act on them. And only carry through with them if you see that what you're intending to do wouldn't cause any harm. When you're acting, reflect on the immediate results of your actions. And if they're causing any harm, stop. Then after acting, reflect on the long-term results. That's really tricky because... It's easy to tell ourselves in the moment that something, you know, it's not going to hurt, it's not going to bother, it's not going to... But over the long term, and especially if it's repeated over and over, then what? If you see that these actions actually did cause harm, you should resolve never to repeat them. And if they didn't, then be happy, take joy, and continue on that path. So these are just basic instructions in integrity. And Sansanim used to tell us when, you know, we would ask him questions, what to do, decisions we had to make about our lives. He would say, only go straight. (laughs) 
which way was straight? <laughs> you know, it's like that um, postcard that shows, anyway. You'd say, only go straight, don't know, 10,000 miles. Only go straight, don't know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So here we have a more straightforward way to gauge which way is straight. (laughs) The straight and narrow. Which way is straight? Um, And we can, by the way, gauge our teachers this way too. Are their actions causing harm or not? It's very simple, isn't it? Has there been harm done or not? It's a good thing to ask. So in this way, we're given a teaching, very simple teaching of how to train in discernment, integrity, love. And it's important because, you know, we live in a society, in a culture where freedom is pretty much considered to be freedom to scratch your itch. And the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of comfort, um, the gauge, somebody was saying to me today, they were really reflecting on a shift in their practice and saying, you know, the gauge really isn't whether or not it feels good or bad, is it? That was very profound. That is very profound because we're addicted to comfort. We're addicted to um, the 10,000 joys and substances uh, as Heather was talking about last night. So after detox, we're in recovery. And in recovery, recovery is where we discover that ultimately reality, truth, is more fulfilling than the um, pleasures that we so uh, compulsively seek. And we begin to see that when we really track what's happening and we look deeply that actually the places that feel the worst are sometimes where the pay dirt is in terms of our learning and in terms of what we need to know in this practice. Seek and ye shall find. If you seek, you really will find. You'll become finders, not seekers. But it's kind of um, counterintuitive. It does go against the stream, as the Buddha said. Because often, um, this is what Rumi said, the most secure place to hide a treasure of gold is some desolate, unnoticed place. Why would anyone hide treasure in plain sight? And so it is said, joy is hidden in sorrow. Or Yeats said, Love has pitched its mansion in the place of excrement. Think about it. It's true, isn't it? Even in our bodies, it's true. That love has pitched its mansion in the place of excrement. I know you were wondering whether or not to laugh. And it isn't funny, and it is funny. And both are true, you know. 
So soon we're going to go home. We left home to come here. And leaving home is a powerful metaphor for doing this practice. You know, that willingness to leave the comfort of the familiar, to leave our familiar, um, cherished ideas about ourselves and everything else. Um, The Buddha expressed after his awakening, he said, the ridge pole is shattered. I don't know what would be the ridge pole. Maybe that center beam. You know, whatever holds the building up, whatever holds the house up. And he said, this house isn't going to be built anymore. I'm not going to build this house again, this edifice of ideas that are all stemming from and returning to uh, the small self, self-referential. How was I? How am I? How am I going to be tomorrow? This kind of um, mind house. My teacher Sansanin used to say, leave your mind house. He would beg us, step out of your mind house. Come out. He would say, um, outside your door is a land of stillness and light. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Just step outside your mind house and look what's waiting for you. This land of silence and light where spring comes and um, the wind blows across the desert (coughs) and the sky is so beautiful all by itself. Howie, too, um, this morning, same idea, he said. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. A monk asked the Buddha once, where should we build a monastery? Where should we build our temple? And the Buddha picked up a piece of dried choya cactus. Can you believe that? He picked up a piece of dried choya cactus and he just planted it in the sand. And he said, right here, right here in this high desert, this is where we'll build a temple. This very place is the lotus land of purity. This very body is the body of the Buddha. That's Hakuin Zenji singing a song called, This Is It. Did we really spend a week here? Did we really leave home and come here? Are we really going to leave this temple tomorrow and go back home? It seems kind of dreamlike, doesn't it? One Zen teacher, when about to die, in the customary tradition of offering a death poem or uh, some Zen shout in the face of death, made a calligraphy and then died. It's a lot of pressure. I'm glad I'm not a Zen teacher. Um, So he was dying and just before he died, he made this calligraphy and then he died. 
And the calligraphy said, it is also supposed to be the final teaching of the teacher for the students. And the calligraphy said, dream. Just that one word, dream. It's already dreamlike this week. So in Nakagawa Roshi said, since life is a dream, let's make it a good dream. <laughs> and that's how we practice uh, metta, loving kindness, Brahmavihara practice, cultivating um, in these precious moments, cultivating our capacity to love and care and be joyful and peaceful. So from one side we came and we're going to go and we spent what we call a week here. And from another side, the side of that big sky mind, there's no coming, there's no going. There's just this, just this and this and this. This is a poem from my teacher, Sansanim. It's called The Human Root, R-O-U-T-E, The Human Path, The Human Way. Coming empty-handed, going empty-handed, that is human. When you're born, where do you come from? When you die, when you die, where do you go? Life is like a floating cloud which appears. Death is like a floating cloud which disappears. The floating cloud itself originally doesn't even exist. Life and death, coming and going, are also like that. But there's one thing which always remains clear. It's pure and clear, not depending on birth or death. What is that one pure and clear thing? And if you're thinking, I don't know, (laughs) then you're keeping don't know mind. Only go straight, don't know. (laughs) The word tantra means weave, and it refers to the weaving together of the sacred and the profane, of the big mind and the small mind, of the absolute and the relative, of the conventional reality that we're going to inhabit when we get behind the wheels of our cars or into our rides tomorrow, and the reality of no coming or going at all. And there are different ways of understanding these two realities. Um, I want to read you another story about Suzuki Roshi, who expressed, they're just two stories, but each of them express one side of this very clearly. Um, Another teacher was visiting Suzuki Roshi before he died. And as this teacher stood by the bedside, Suzuki looked up and said to him, And the teacher bowed and said to him, thank you for your great effort. And that, I don't want to die. It was just the cry of a human being, something any of us might say. And then shortly before his death, Suzuki Roshi told Stan White, Stan is a guy who 
lived at Tassajara for many years, and then he, he now lives in Taos, New Mexico, and he's in his 80s. He runs the Zendo there. Um, he became a student of my teacher, Coben. Um, total character. Unbelievable that he's running the Zendo. And um, <laughs> Naropa once asked Coben to come lead a session, and Coben said yes, and then the time came and he couldn't go, maybe didn't want to go, not too clear which it was, and he sent Stan. Now, you can't realize what that means, um, that he sent Stan to lead the session. But take, I don't know who you are here, but the person who feels the most strung out the least capable, the least articulate, you know, didn't go to probably finish high school, let alone college, did time in prison, all of it, and um, loves the Dharma, loves the Dharma, and feels it saved his life. That's Stan. So Coben sent Stan to lead the Sashin, but that was also before he had the wisdom of being in his 80s. Right before Suzuki Roshi died, he said to Stan, Don't grieve for me. I know who I am, and I know where I'm going. Don't worry about a thing. So that's the other side. So this weaving of this two-sidedness of life... um, the sacred and the profane, whatever we want to call them. In Judaism, it said, sanctify the world. Don't avoid it. How do we go forth into the world and sanctify the world? I said uh, in the meal instructions, I quoted Zen Master Rinzai, and he said, there is nothing that is not sacred. There is nothing that is not profound. How do we experience life this way so that there's nothing that's outside of the realm of the sacred and there's nothing that we don't experience as being profound? You know, all week long we've been practicing the tools of how to do this, bringing the care, the attentiveness, the wholeheartedness to our presence. And I also think we sanctify the world through our wounded love that Julie talked about. I don't think our wounded love is a mistake. Our wounded love is what draws us to the Dharma. Our wounded love is what may eventually, little by little, draw our whole culture to the Dharma. We don't know. This is only the first 100 years, and it takes at least a cup of understanding, a barrel of love, and oceans of patience. And who knows what it will be, but I think our wounded love may be what draws our whole culture to the Dharma. And I certainly know that mindfulness is hot in L.A. these days. I mean, everyone wants to learn mindfulness. And it's exciting, too, I'll come back to Wounded Love. It's exciting, too, because the objective findings of brain science, this has been the decade of the brain with functional MRIs illuminating all kinds of things about how the brain works. We could never see before, and now we can actually see. And the objective findings are shedding light on exactly how experience directly affects 
gene function and um, neuronal connections and the very organization of the mind. And we know that the brain is changeable. It's called um, neuroplasticity, this quality of the changeability of the brain. And um, there have been experiments done where people have learned a certain practice and repeated it for maybe three months. MRI beforehand, MRI afterwards. The area of the brain that governs the doing of that activity grows. There's actually more cells in there. And then if they stop and they do another MRI three months later, they've all come back to their regular amount that they were before. I think this has implications for our practice. Really. And it's, you know, basically what this means is no matter how wounded, how traumatized, the brain can grow new neural pathways and heal. Imaho, this is amazing. This is really something we intuitively know from our own practice and from witnessing miracles, miracles, miracles over the decades. But there's something so great about having it objectively, scientifically verified. Science is the dominant discourse of our time, and when science says it's okay and it's true, we kind of relax. So wounded love is not a mistake because it causes us to seek. But it's also not a mistake because it's the source of our strength. Love pitches its mansion in the place of our shit. You know, and that's where we find that pay dirt of wisdom, of transforming suffering into wisdom. I want to read you a poem. This is a poem by Adrienne Rich, I think. I don't have the name on here, but I think it was hers. Um, and it's a poem about Marie Curie. Uh, she loved the element that she uncovered, radium. And she loved it so much that she could never really admit that it was what was making her sicken and die. This poem is called Power. Living in the earth deposits of our history, today a backhoe divulged out of a crumbling flank of earth, one bottle, amber, perfect, a hundred-year-old cure for fever or melancholy, a tonic for living on the earth in the winters of this climate. They used to think that it was for that. Today I was reading about Marie Curie, Marie Curie. She must have known she suffered from radiation sickness, her body bombarded for years by the element she had purified. It seems she denied to the end the source of the cataracts on her eyes, the cracked and separating skin of her finger ends till she could no longer hold a test tube, or a pencil. She died a famous woman, denying her wounds, denying her wounds came from the same source as her power. We don't have to die like Marie Curie. 
denying our wounds, denying the source of both our wounds and our love. Because we've learned how to question, we've learned how to look deeply, we've learned that it's okay not to know. And just one last quick story. Um, A friend of mine was a monk. She was a monk in a Zen community in New York for about 10 years, and she had reached a kind of elevated status in the community. And she actually ran a bakery, and it was really, really hard work. And she said she was there, it was a Saturday night at midnight, and she was there with some of the homeless guys who were training with her to learn how to make cakes. And um, one of the guys looked at her and said, Lady, you've got a shitty job. (laughs) But she was elevated, as I said, in the hierarchy of the community. And so her job, um, part of her job was that she would get to ferry around visiting dignitaries when they would come to town. And so one day she got to drive a very venerable uh, Roshi who was visiting, and she got to drive him from New York to upstate New York. So they had a long time in the car together. And she's a mischievous kind of person and has a great sense of humor. And so at one point during the ride, she said, so Roshi, she said, tell me the last koan. I want to know the answer. I want to know the answer. Now, you have to understand, that's like asking, I don't know what the equivalent would be, you know, for the questions on your PhD orals ahead of time or something like that. It was, it's not done, needless to say, to ask the answers to koans, and especially a koan that would be way beyond where you are in your own koan study. And he said, I'm not going to tell you the last koan. He said, but I'll tell you the answer to the koan. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, the answer is love. So meditation is to keep our hearts open, to come to our senses with our hearts wide open, fully present with what is. And this is an act of love. It's also an act of resistance to all that is not of love. War, violence, terror, and social injustice. Right here, right now, during each sitting, each walking, each breath, each moment, each sound, we can express our great love of life. And we can train in peaceful coexistence allowing all the many beings to peacefully coexist in the same heart. This is from James Baldwin, the book Nobody Knows My Name. The question which one asks oneself begins at last to illuminate the world and become one's keys to the experience of others. One can only face in others what one can face in oneself. On this confrontation depends the measure of our wisdom and compassion.
So this is the way in which we are doing the work of peacemaking and social justice by learning to include um, all these parts to not see abusers and um, warriors and terrorists and to not see them as just out there but to acknowledge what's so in our own hearts and when we can do that we really can live in peaceful coexistence with all that is may this capacity, may this uh, mind, may this heart extend over the whole universe. That's our deepest wish. It's time, so I'm going to close. This is a quote from Howard Zinn, whose son-in-law, John Kabat-Zinn, is um, responsible for um, really helping spread these teachings of mindfulness throughout the world. He says, Human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history, and we can apply this to our own histories too, What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. We don't have to wait for, I'm adding this, enlightenment and make enlightenment some story about the future. The future is an infinite succession of presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. So let's just sit for a moment. So thank you for your kind attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.